Welcome to Walking in Faith with Pastor Rob Currington. This podcast is dedicated to helping develop lifelong seekers of the Kingdom of God. Each week, Pastor Rob helps bring God's message for living to those seeking a richer and more Christ-filled life. Now let's join Pastor Rob as he shares this week's message. Well, turn to the book of Numbers as we continue our study. Their second message, preparing for the promised land. Preparation is important, isn't it? Whether it is preparation for death or for retirement or for health, financial crisis, whether you're preparing for a natural disaster like a hurricane or earthquake or fire, we all understand or should understand by now is that preparation for the known and the unknown is an important mindset to have and it's important responsibility. Most of us have found ourselves at one time or another unprepared. It's not a good feeling, is it? And we can take time and money and energy to to climb out of whatever disaster that has overcome us. Yet though we know that we should be prepared, we still many times will fall victim to procrastination, passivity, or just unpersuaded of the need to be prepared. But I need to tell you today that scripture tells us that we need to be prepared. As we go into the book of Numbers, especially these first four chapters, what you're going to see is numbers, numbers, numbers. Today's passage, Moses records a host of numbers, 603,000, 22,000, 8,580, 22,273. We see ages of 20 years old, 20 to 50 years old, or one month and old plus. We're going to get all sorts of numbers, and many times that makes reading numbers, especially those first five, seven chapters, very difficult because we come to it and it's like, We just have a blank, right? You know, all these numbers just seem to be overwhelming. Yet we need to realize that these numbers come from a census that's taken of the Hebrew children one year after they left Egypt. Moses has so far has recorded the exodus of Israel from Egypt. He's recorded the covenant that they made with Yahweh at Mount Sinai. We saw Israel breaking the covenant with the with the golden calf before the ink was even dry. The institution of the tabernacle is then made and well as the priesthood. And now he's going to record the journey to the promised land. The Hebrew children are now ready for that final leg of their journey to the promised land. But before they do, we're going to see that there's a few last preparations that God needs to finalize with them before they head out. So with that, on the monitor and also in your Bibles, we're going to read Numbers chapter 1, the first three verses together silently as I read out loud. Would you join with me? Where it says, The Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai. In the tent of meeting on the first day of the second month, in the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt, saying, take a census of all the congregation of the people of Israel, by clans, by fathers' houses, according to the numbers of the names of every male, head by head. Verse 3, from 20 years old and upward, all in Israel who are able to go to war. You and Aaron shall list them company by company. Father, As we open up this book and begin to read it, I pray that you would give us a special understanding and discernment as we read, that we may read with understanding, 
that we would know how did, uh, to how to interpret it, how to read it effectively, and then how to apply it to our lives. As we take an, an ancient text that's meant for an ancient tribe, and now we bring it here into the 21st century, what does that mean to us? How is it relevant? How can this help me in my day-to-day life? Father, we know that your word is all inspired. And so, Father, it's profitable for us even today. So give me the words to say. Let us know the difference between uh, what your word says and just Rob's mere opinion. And Father, that you may be glorified in the reading, the listening, and the responding uh, to the Holy Spirit, to your word. We praise in Christ's name. Amen. Once again, we see Moses' special role as a mediator between Yahweh and the children of Israel as we see the Lord spoke to Moses. As you may recall from Exodus and Leviticus, that tent of meeting that we read there in Numbers was also what was called the tabernacle. That was the place where Israel would come to worship Yahweh. It was there that God's presence would come. Remember, as the cloud would come and no one was able to enter it except for Moses, because it was here that Moses would come and commune and communicate with God as one would communicate with another person or an intimate friend. It was in these first four chapters, God is going to command Moses to do several censuses. A census is a count of the people in preparation for Israel's journey to the promised land. Now, these counts are going to serve, these censuses are going to serve as uh, uh, several uh, preparations. Now, the first preparation was to help the children of Israel to be ready for war. If you're taking notes, there's the three. The first one is that there was the preparation for war. As they begin their second year after the miraculous delivery, deliverance from Egypt, Yahweh commands Moses to take a census of all the congregation of the people of Israel. Moses was, was to count every male from 20 years and upward in Israel who are able to go to war. He wants to know how many able-bodied men, 20 years and up, are ready to bear arms. Now you have to remember that Israel was going to face some fierce resistance from the nations that presently occupied the land of Canaan. They were not going to take kindly to Israel coming in and taking over the cities that they had built, the, the houses that they had built and raised their families, the fields that they had tilled and the ground that they had worked. Israel is going to come and, and take that from them. They're not going to take that kindly. Later, Moses will send uh, 10 men to spy out the land. And they will give a report that will cause the Hebrew children to cringe in fear because of the size of their cities and physical stature. So Israel is going to fear, uh, face some fierce uh, uh, resistance. But we also have to remember, as you think of that, is that it was only one year ago that these men were slaves. Think of that. They had no military training. They did not possess fighting skills that had been honed in battle. Nor were they probably even the healthiest coming out of Egypt. Egypt kept them in a barely state of being able to function. However, after a year, only one year of Yahweh's provision and favor, they were ready to confront the enemy. The first thing a general must do before sending troops into battle is to do what? is to get a count of how many available soldiers you have. Jesus taught the simple truth, as you look here at the monitors, at Luke chapter 14. 
Jesus said, or what king is going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and he asks for terms of peace. It's important to know, do we have enough men to go to war? After conducting the count, Moses came out with a total of 603,550 men. These men, this half a million plus men army, are now available to bear arms. Now this number did not include the Levites as they would have a different role when it came to the battle. In chapter 2 of Numbers, Yahweh uses the census to separate the tribes into four groups that would encamp around the tabernacle. Jake, do we have that? Yeah, thank you there. As you'll see here, it forms kind of a cross. In the middle would be the Levites and the tabernacles. And then as you would look, you would see the camps. And you can see there, it gives you the number of each of the tribes that would equal the 603,000. So this is how they would encamp along as they're in their camps. As we go on, we'll see that the second preparation, the first was for the war, prepare for war. The second preparation for the census was for the tabernacle. Look at with me in Numbers chapter 1, verse 49. It says, only the tribe of Levi you shall not list. So this is why they were taken out. You shall not take a census of them among the people of Israel for war. But appoint the Levites over the tabernacle of the testimony and over all of its furnishings and over all that belongs to it. They are to carry the tabernacle and all of its furnishings. So the tribe of Levi was set apart to minister, to manage, and to mine the, mar the tabernacle. Its furnishings, remember the altar, the candlesticks, all the things that make up inside the tabernacle, and as well as take care of the high priest. The tribe of Levi consisted of three clans and each would have their own special duties. This next census that's going to take place is in Numbers chapter 3 and look at verse 15 if you want to turn there very quickly. In the first census he says do not count them but then he says now let's take a second census. And in it he says let's list the sons of Levi by their father's houses and by the clans. Every male from a month old and upwards you shall list. And that, finally told, that final tally came up to 22,000 young men one month and older. These men would be responsible for all things related to the temple. It was their duty to protect and to prepare it for service. They were also responsible for packing it up and carrying it during the journey. One note of interest is that they also served to protect the Hebrew children from the tabernacle. So not only would the Levites protect the tabernacle from the enemies while they're traveling and during war, but it also was to protect the tabernacle or protect the people from the tabernacle. Not the tabernacle from the people. Do you get the difference there? Because look at this. Look at Numbers chapter 1. Go back. And look at verse 51. You know, like in this church here, we have cameras around so we can protect the church from those who might want to break in. But wouldn't you imagine if the, if the church itself was something that was dangerous and that could hurt someone else? Look at verse 51 of chapter 1. When the tabernacle is to set out, talking about on the journey, the Levi shall take it down 
And when the tabernacle is to be pitched, set back up, the Levites shall set it up. And so it was only their job. And if any outsider comes near, he shall be put to what? Death. Who's an outsider? Anyone who wasn't a Levite. Not just talking about anyone from the land of Canaan, but also anyone from the tribe of Reuben, from the tribe of Judah. You can almost imagine, some of you might like this excuse. You see someone, there's a Levi, he's struggling with, his, with, with maybe a tent pole or he's struggling to put something up and you want to rush and help him? That'd be the last thing you do. Now, children, you cannot do that. Don't do this to your dad. Say, dad, if I help you with this, I'm going to drop down dead. Don't, don't do that. You might drop down dead if you don't help him. But he says, any outsider comes near, he shall be put to death. So the Levites were there to protect the people from the tabernacle. That's how sacred it was. The people of Israel shall pitch their tents by their companies, each man in his own camp and each man by his own standards. But the Levites in verse 53 shall camp around the tabernacle of the testimony. Why? To protect it, right? Well, yes, but look it. So that there may be no wrath on the congregation of the people of Israel. And the Levites shall guard over the tabernacle of the testimony. In other words, they weren't to go just willy-nilly up to the tabernacle and just go in. It wasn't a place where they can go and just hang out. You might remember the story of David when he's bringing the Ark of the Covenant into the city. And it's on an oxen cart, a cart that's being pulled by oxen. And all of a sudden, it starts to shake and starts to fall. You remember this story in, in Samuel? And, and, and one of a man who is, who's wanting to protect the ark reaches up and grabs it to keep it from falling. What happens to him? God kills him. And so what we see here, this is sacred. And so God is preparing the tabernacle, not only just to carry it and protect its furnishings, to make sure it gets from place A to B, but also to protect the people from the wrath of God who resides in the temple, even in the tabernacle, even when it's being carried. Now, the third preparation was for the priests themselves, was for the priests themselves. We're going to jump to Numbers chapter 4. And look in verse 2. The Lord commands Moses once again to take a census, to take a count. Take a census of the sons of Kohath from among the sons of Levi by their clans and their father's houses. Now, if you continue, we're going to see that he does that. In verse 22, he's going to command them to count the sons of Gershon. And in verse 29, the sons of Moriah. Now, this can be kind of confusing, but what we're seeing here is they were to count these men. And these men were from the tribe of Levi. Now, you might remember Levi was one of the sons of Jacob. That's what the tribes were named after. Jacob, or, um, Levi, Reuben, uh, Manasseh, so on and so forth. Levi was one of the sons of Jacob. He was one of the tribes. Now of that, Levi had three sons. And that's what you're seeing their names there. Their names were Koath, uh, Moriah, and then the other one was Gershon. And so these three sons of Levi, they wound up having children and they cousins and so on and so forth. And those three were the heads of the family. So you were a son of Gershon, the son of Levi. That was who you would, uh, uh, that's how you would find what your job was, what your duty was. 
So in verse 22, he commands them to count those sons. They were to count the men from 30 to 50, from 30 years of age to 50. And they would be responsible for special services of the tabernacle. Men, Moses records that of the 22,000 men of the Levite tribe, there were 8,580 men that were from 30 to 50. So we see three counts, God preparing Israel for these things. He's preparing them to take care of the tabernacle and all of its furnishings. And as you go through Numbers 4, you can see those individual things. But what I want to do is when you and I look at that and read that, and I would encourage you to read if you haven't as of yet, many of us would say that reading an account, a census of people and their duties that you and I may find difficult to understand is boring and, to be honest, is just uninspiring. Why do I have to read that? What, what purpose does it even have to take 10 weeks and study the book of Numbers? It would be prudent for you and I to understand that this census that's found in Numbers, when it's talking about a month old, a 30-year-old, a 20-year-old, men for war, it also serves as God's favor, as God's faithfulness and God's blessings. Now, you and I usually don't read that in that way. But those numbers are a sign of God's favor, of his faithfulness and his blessings. You see, these first four chapters of numbers is also part of the inspired word of God and is also for profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and training in righteousness. But what you and I need to do is sometimes instead of just reading through something, coming to a wall, saying this is uninteresting or this is difficult to understand or just repetitive, we need to understand why is God including this in the Bible? I mean, there are many ancient texts of the Hebrew children of the Israelites that they wrote that are not in God's word. So why in the world is numbers included? Now, we saw that last week. It's because they were examples for our instructions. So what do we find here? Is what we find, even in these four chapters, is that God is revealing something about himself. It's showing his favor. It's showing his faithfulness and his blessing. The census does this by reminding us that God has promised Abraham many things. Look at uh, Genesis chapter 12. I believe we may have this on the screen. In Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, we read this. <clears throat> now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Speaking of the land of Canaan, the land of promise, where they are heading towards. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is a wonderful promise that sets up the story of redemption. Remember, the prince slays the dragon and wins the girl. This is an important portion of scripture that tells us how God is going to do that. Numbers chapter 1 through 4 lists those that Yahweh has preserved through 400 years of wandering of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, their captivity and their captivity in Egypt. You and I must remember from our study in Genesis 
is that it all started with two people, or we can say one, Abraham and then his wife, Sarah. Then it started with 70 as we close the book of Genesis and go to Exodus. There's 70 people that travel to Egypt. And now we see here almost 2 million people. Could you imagine, how many of you, you might have a Bible at home that's like a family Bible, and in it you might have your ancestry and your descendants. You're the parent of so, so on and so forth. Or you might do your, um, what's that, ancestry.com? Uh, I won't promote that since it's Mormon, but your genealogy, thank you, that's the word I'm looking for. And what do you want to do is you want to find out where your family came from and what branch you are. Now, we read that just really to kind of see what's going on and hope that maybe we'll find somebody that had some money and we just got to find them, right? But what that tells you is God's providence of bringing you to where you are today. Maybe it began in Europe or Asia or South America or somewhere else, but God's providence in bringing you through. And as we look at our family tree, we may see some that are scoundrels and some that were saviors, some that were great men and some that we just want to forget, some that lived to long ages and some that died before their time. But it shows God's blessing. And in the same way, what we're finding here in Numbers is that's revealing that God took one person and by the time we get to Numbers, we see about 2 million, 603 strapping young men ready to go to war. This is God's favor, God's blessings, and God's faithfulness. All of them were chosen and loved by God and were ready to enter the promised land. This should inform and remind and encourage us that God is a great God who loves his children and is faithful to his promises. Amen? Just as God promised them a land, he had promised them a special place of rest. The new heavens and the new earth. Let's look at this. Let's approach the scriptures with a renewed vigor and desire to read it with understanding. Because just as God has promised them, he's promised us this new heaven and new earth. Each and every generation, as we see here in our church, is another sign of God's special providence. I know that when um, you know, we had children, we were so excited. And no offense to my children, but when we had our grandchildren, there was something else. Uh, if you've never been a grand grandparent, you just don't understand it yet, to be honest. There was something about seeing little Landon and then little Nolan come that actually impacted me more. My son had a son. God was faithful to another generation. It's amazing. I pray that I'm old enough to see Landon and Nolan and my other grandchildren that are here to come as God is going to bless them and we'll see another generation. Why? Because it reveals God's goodness and his love. Now, what I want to do now is I want to transition. As we look at this, we have to ask, so what is this numbers? Man, this is an ancient book. Man, this thing is more than 2,000 years old. We're talking, this is about 4,000 years, you know. What does this have to do with you and I? What does this tell us about Yahweh? What can we learn from this passage? What does it tell us about God? What promises are there to hold in Numbers chapter 1 through 4? How does it help me at work? How does it help me get along with my wife? Well, there's great questions, and I'm glad you asked. As I noted just a moment ago, it reveals the faithfulness of God and his goodness towards his people, and for his children. 
His promise to protect, to guide, and bless those who are called by his name. Though you and I are not ancient Israel, we are not packing up and carrying the tabernacle. We are also his people. In 1 Peter chapter 2, the Holy Spirit writes this. He says, you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. You are a people for God's own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into the, his marvelous light. He goes on to say, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. As we look at them as examples for our instructions, we also understand that God loves us and he's preparing us for something wonderful as well. And as his children, he has called us to prepare for our journey. We may not be journeying as much as they are in the same way, but you and I are on a journey. In this case, you and I need to prepare our minds, our hearts, and our strength for three things. Let me say it again. We need to prepare our minds, our heart, and our strength for three things. And I want to share those three things with you this morning. First, you and I must prepare for the cost of following Christ. You and I must prepare for the cost of following Christ. We must take account. Turn to Luke chapter 14, if you would, please. Unfortunately, too many pastors and teachers and churches and Christians present the gospel message of salvation and redemption in error. They present the acceptance of Christ takes only a simple one-time prayer that can be recited without any thought. Yes, salvation is a free offer of grace. Yet Christ had more to say. Look in Luke chapter 14. Go down with me in verse 27. Jesus taught this. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot cannot, cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower, and here we go, we're seeing this, this quote that I gave you earlier, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Other words, when he lays a foundation, he's not able to finish it. And all who see it begin to mock. Look, he started, but he couldn't finish it. Verse 31, going out to an encounter with a king in war, will he not sit down again first and deliberate whether he can meet him with his 10,000? But he goes on to say in verse 33, so therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. To follow Christ, you must be prepared to count the cost and to pay the cost of following Christ. Salvation is more than saying a simple prayer. Turning to Christ means to become a lifelong disciple, one who understands the cost of following Christ. When we did our study of 1 Peter a year or so ago, we learned that the genuine Christian will face opposition from his family and his friends and others. Just as Israel faced fierce opposition from the, from the inhabitants of Canaan, you and I will face resistance, hate, and anger from those in this world. We came to understand that as Christians, you and I live in a world that is hostile to our faith. 
and to the way in which we worship. This is why Peter would say, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So when they speak against you as evildoers, and why will they speak against us as evildoers? Because you're a bigot. You are prejudiced against those of the, of the LGBTQ. You are seeing it today. That is just one example out of many. That they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now that's not saying that they're going to honor you today. It will say that then when they're gene being judged by God, they will see that you were right when they stand before the Almighty God. You see, the cost of following Christ is to face opposition. But that opposition itself will be a great testimony. We're reminded of the words of Christ. when he says, when you count the cost of following me, the cost may be a broken marriage because your husband or your spouse will not follow you. Or there's families, mother against daughter, Father against son. And it's sad today, and we pray for our other members in a tender in church, but we have people in our church whose families are separated and divisive because of their stand for Christ. Some of you are struggling, maybe that yourself, that I'm not aware of. Maybe you're struggling in your neighborhood or in your place of work. But you must be prepared to count the cost of following Christ. For if you are not prepared, you will falter. You will fail. And you're in danger. You're in danger of facing the Lord on the day of judgment and hear the words, depart from me. You never knew me. Churches are filled with people who have not prepared for the cost of following Christ. And as Landon so aptly put it several weeks ago, the cares of this world drive them away or the tribulation. So I'm here to tell you a genuine Christian is one who's prepared to count the cost and still follow him. The second thing that you and I must prepare for is for the conflicts in our sanctification journey. You and I know the word sanctification. We've seen it many times here. Let me repeat it. It's where we become freer from sin and more like Christ. It's where we're being set apart from God and we're becoming more and more like Jesus. And like the ancient tribe of Israel, you and I are going to face two types of conflict from within and from without. We have already discussed the opposition from family, friends, and others that are opposed to God. But the most obvious opposition is going to be found in our scripture reading of earlier. Turn once again back to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. Paul tells us something that you and I need to be aware of and need to prepare for. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, you and I usually believe that the greatest enemies that, are, that we, we face are in those that oppose us and make our lives difficult, our spouses, our parents, our children, our in-laws, our co-workers, etc. It's somebody. But according to Scripture, 
There is more than that under the surface. The designs of Satan who uses those people, the adversary of God, to seek to destroy and paralyze the child of God. You and I must remember that he is a roaring lion seeking to devour Christians, the chosen people of God. You and I must be prepared for his attacks. Now we say, well, how do I prepare for that attack? Well, one, recognizing that your enemy is not your spouse who gets angry with you or gives you the cold shoulder. Your enemy is not your neighbor who does not mind his own dog and allows him to go in your yard. Your enemy is not your child who's rebelling against you. Our enemy is that of Satan. You and I must be prepared for his attacks. As we go down to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, Scripture gives us a to-do list. Anyone here love to-do list? You work better if you have a to-do list? Yeah. You know, you, whether it's something that you do on, the, on, your, on a pad of paper, on a phone, or something of that, we like to-do list. Well, here it is. Take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand in the evil de- day and having done all to stand firm. He goes, have your, have a fasten on the belt of truth. Put on the blessed breastplate of righteousness. Have shoes on your feet, which is the gospel of peace, the readiness given by the gospel of peace. He says, take up the shield of faith so you can extinguish all his flaming fiery darts. Verse 17, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. He says, pray all the time in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. Let me break that down real quickly for you. What's the to-do list? How can I fight against, the not against flesh and blood, but against those things that are behind it? Well, the belt of truth, that's the word of God. Understanding what the truth is, who Jesus is, the revelation of God. The breastplate of righteousness is you and I must understand that we are not right because of ourselves, because Christ's righteousness it's the shoes of the gospel of peace. It's the good news that you and I are reconciled with God and we're to minister to others that say God wants to reconcile you to himself. The shield of faith is the trust that God is faithful to all his promises. The helmet of salvation is the protection that you and I, we belong to the Father and no one can snatch him out of his hand. And obviously prayer as we come, Jesus prays for us. The Father gives good gifts. The Holy Spirit applies those gifts. As well as we go on, then it's just the sword of the Spirit. Again, the Word of God. Our attacks are not in anger, but using the Word of God and speaking love, being gentle, being kind. The Bible says you need to prepare for the conflicts in your journey. You're going to face fierce resistance from without. And you need to understand that. Satan is a defeated foe, and one day he will fast, face the full wrath of God. However, here's also what's important, just as we saw in the Israelites, is that the second enemy that you and I must prepare ourselves for is ourselves. The Holy Spirit warns us in Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23. You need to mark this down. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the springs of life. For just like the headwaters will be small 
and then flows out from a creek and then it's fed many tributaries and it becomes a big Mississippi River. You and I need to recognize that our heart is the headwaters. And if those headwaters are poison or bitter, then it bitters and ruins the whole lot. You and I must keep our heart with all vigilance. The apostle Paul, Peter writes it in this way. He says, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. We are like the ancient Israelites in that regard. I urge you to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. You and I realize there's two enemies out there. Satan, who's trying to destroy our character and draw us away from God, but then our own desires and lusts and flesh that seeks to be satisfied outside of God's promises. We must prepare for this battle with the same tools given to us in Ephesians 6, the whole armor of God. Let us not fall victim to procrastination, passivity, or pessimism in our sanctification journey. Let us not say, I'll take care of it later. Or, you know, it's okay. I can deal with this. I can listen to this. I can handle this urge on my own. Or just pessimistic. I'll never defeat this. So I just give up. You and I must prepare for the conflicts in our sanctification journey. We must take account. Do I have the whole armor of God? Am I missing a piece? What am I not using? And then thirdly, is you and I must prepare for eternity. We must prepare for eternity. Again, like the ancient Hebrew children, we must remember that our home is not found in Egypt or in the wilderness, but a land of great promise, rest, and peace. Too many professing Christians act like they are living their best life now, meaning that they believe that they must enjoy all that this world has to offer. They're out with their friends, they're out enjoying life, and you know what? They're just living for today. God warns in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, do not love the world or the things that are in the world. For anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever, listen to this, whoever does the will of God abides forever. Again, you and I forget that the great promise is that you and I will live forever with God. The promise is that he will be our God and we will be his people. Jesus warned his disciples in Matthew chapter 6. I believe here it's on the monitor, verse 19. He says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. There are too many Christians today that are living as if eternity doesn't matter. That we will not stand before a holy God and be judged for what we've done here on earth. Turn to Colossians chapter 3, if you would, as we just begin to sum up. 
you and I need to prepare to enter into the new heavens and the new earth. We prepare by following the instructions that found in Colossians chapter 3 as you and I prepare for heaven. Because the lure of this world is strong. It is easy to think and live just for today. Colossians chapter 3 verse 1 says, If you have then been raised with Christ, if you are a new creature, seek then the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are what? Above not on things that are here on the earth. For you have died. Your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Amen? Amen. Verse 3. No, verse 5. So what does he say to do then? Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but you are a new creature, I add. You and I must be prepared for the conflict that's ahead. We must be prepared to count the cost of following Christ. We must be prepared for eternity, living for eternity. So let me ask, are you prepared for the cost of following Christ? Are you truly one of Christ? Or are you finding yourself saying, this is too much? Are you prepared for the battle of sanctification? To make yourself freer from Christ? Or freer from sin and more like Christ? Scratch that. Elders, don't get on me. And are you prepared for eternity? If not, are you prepared to make that commitment today, right now? If not, why not? What's stopping you from being prepared? God understood, hey, Moses, you need to do this to prepare yourselves for what's ahead. You and I need to prepare. Let's not be caught unawares. Let's pray and make that commitment this morning. With every head bowed, Everybody close as the worship team comes up. I want to give you an opportunity, if you don't know Christ, to make it today. To know that Christ has paid the penalty of your sin. He's bore upon himself the wrath of God. And to accept Christ, to follow Christ, means to repent of your sins, of your dead works recognizing that you cannot work your way to heaven. It's not about being good. It's not about going to church. It's not about giving. But it's about recognizing that Christ has done what is needed and that God has accepted his work on our behalf. Turn and trust him today. Would you do so? That's the first preparation. If you made that preparation, then you need to begin on that sanctification journey, making yourself more like Christ, working with the Holy Spirit as you yield to God's word. Put on that whole armor of God. And then lastly, please recognize that yes, you are living today in this world, but your citizenship is in a greater place. And we need to live as if one day we will stand before God and be judged and rewarded 
and we will spend eternity in a place that will last forever. Do not fall for Satan's promises of living for yourself. Prepare your hearts this morning as God calls you to. Father, we just thank you for your goodness. We just pray that you just be with us and prepare our hearts. That is a difficult thing today to do. We want to procrastinate. We want to be pessimistic about whether we can or we're just passive about it. But Father, give us that urge. Help us to see the urgency of preparing for these three things. Lord, you are a good God who reveals your promises, your faithfulness, and your favor upon us. I pray that you put your blessings this morning. We praise in Christ's name. Amen. We hope you have enjoyed this week's Walking in Faith podcast. We encourage you to share this podcast with others in order to help spread God's message to all those in need. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Email us at walkinginfaith at orangevilla.org. You can help us spread this podcast by writing a review at iTunes. And don't forget to visit us online at orangevilla.org. There you will find more information about our ministry, as well as share your thoughts, submit prayer requests, and find out how you can help others to grow in God's love. Until next week, may God bless you in everything you do.